Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome to a brand new year. Ah, kind of feels like a breath of fresh air, doesn't it? I'm feeling pretty good about it. I hope you've taken precautions, though. There are few days of the year that have as much ritual and superstition, as much symbolic significance, as New Year's Day, after all. And this turn around the sun seems to have taken on even more meaning than most. New Year's traditions run the gamut, and really depend on what part of the world you're in. But the goal seems to be pretty much the same, no matter where you are, or what superstitious hoops you have to jump through. They're all designed to give you the best shot at good luck and prosperity in the new year. Things like eating round, coin-like foods to bring wealth. Opening the window to let negative energy out. Cleaning house, or specifically not cleaning house, depending on who you ask. Dressing up like demons, or bears, and roaming the streets, or even wearing red underwear. If there's something you want to bring on, or ward against, I can almost guarantee there's some kind of New Year's ritual or activity 
you should do, or not do, to make it happen. For my family, that usually meant my Hungarian grandmother showing up to our house to toss lentils on the doorstep, which she said was supposed to bring us good fortune. Whether it made a difference or not, we're still trying to sort out. Although, if ever there was a year to comb the recesses of obscure tradition and superstition, the start of 2021 would probably be it. So, if you're listening to this episode on the first, or to hedge your bets, even the second, third, fourth, it probably couldn't hurt to take a few precautions of your own. I think I'll leave you with that this evening. Let's move on to our fiction. Our first story of the year comes to us from R. H. Dixon. R. H. Dixon is a horror enthusiast who, when not escaping into the fantastical realms of fiction, lives on the northeast coast of England with her husband and Whippet. She's been an active member of the Horror Writers Association since 2017. In her work, she enjoys exploring the darknesses and weaknesses within the human psyche, while weaving in elements of the supernatural. She loves strong, relatable characters that are flawed and put through their paces. Children of the Night, join me for R. H. Dixon's The Hole in the Wall, a Tales to Terrify original. Three days after Bracken died, Joe finds one of his black hairs on the wall next to the couch, about ten inches above the skirting board. She thinks about how the thickest end used to be attached to him, growing from one of the many thousands of hair follicles on his body when he was alive, and breathing, and shedding, and... being. Now it exists without him. Such a minuscule thing with a massive effect that delivers like a gut punch. She knows there will be many more in the vast, open, and hidden spaces of the house, and has no doubt she'll find lots of them in the coming weeks and months. Ones the vacuum cleaner doesn't pick up. Loose fur that's behind and inside of furniture, and ingrained in the carpet, entwined in the fibers. Her heart bleeds more hurt into her veins, weighing down her limbs and making her think she might collapse. She can't imagine a time when finding Bracken's hair won't upset her. Joe bends and tries to pick the hair off the wall with her fingernails, but it's stuck on with what looks like glue, an odd patch of gooey, yellowish paste. She doesn't understand where it's come from and the more she looks at it, 
the more it reminds her of the stuff that came out of the sore on Bracken's belly after he got snagged on some brambles last summer and the wound became infected. Last summer is such a long time ago in terms of her grasp on him. If she'd known, she'd lose him not twelve months later. Joe would have stayed there in that time for longer. Forever, if possible. She'd have given him more hugs and kisses, loved him more fiercely, though she knows that's not possible. She couldn't have loved him any more than she did. Still does. This strand of his hair holds fast to the smooth, calico-colored plaster of the wall, so Joe brings a damp cloth from the kitchen and rubs till the hair and gluey stuff come off. But the paint does too leaving an ugly patch of gray plasterboard from which sprouts an impossible clump of black fur, about six strands bunched together. Joe worries her bottom lip with her teeth, can't understand how it can be that the wall is growing Bracken's hair. She scrubs at the patch some more till all the hair has come off. Then she stares at the smudges on the cloth for a while. Then the wall... It's like the bald patch on Bracken's belly that wouldn't grow fur once the bramble bush wound had healed and the scab had fallen off. The wall needs repainting, but Joe decides she'll do it some other time. It's not important right now. She sits on the floor with the cloth in her hand and stares at what's left of Bracken and cries again. In another room, the phone rings. Joe ignores it. Has nothing to say. The next day, Joe notices the mark on the wall. There are no more hairs, but the damage she caused with the cloth looks somehow worse. Maybe it's just the way it's dried, she thinks. But it appears as though the plaster is crumbling. There's a powdery residue on the carpet beneath. She tells herself she'll deal with it later. It's not urgent. After making a cup of tea with milk that's on the turn, she sits on the couch and picks up a book. Too much silence fills the house, and because of it, there's almost not enough room for her to sit comfortably. She feels sick, restless, can't concentrate. She hears the front gate whine, then someone knocks on the front door. She expects to hear a subsequent clamor of paws bounding through to the hallway and Bracken barking, but nothing happens, so she stays where she is, doesn't want to see anyone anyway. Eventually, the gate whimpers on its hinges again, and Joe thinks it sounds like Bracken when he was sleeping, pursuing restless dreams. She wonders, in a panic-stricken moment, but what if the noise she used to hear was never Bracken at all? How can she ever be sure now? She looks to the spot on the couch where he would have been sleeping. It's empty. That night, Joe dreams about Bracken and wakes herself up with the force of crying. Real, harrowing tears that soak her face. The compulsory effort to pour out her grief twists her gut, pulverizes her heart. She'd never known pain like this. 
For a brief time, her subconscious relaxed, allowing her to have him back, but now she's forced to reacquaint with the stark reality that her constant companion is gone. She allows herself to fantasize the impossible, that he might walk through the door again like his brief and sudden illness and all the vet trips and devastating decisions that had to be made never happened. Because surely this test of endurance is too cruel to be real. But it is. And this is the way things are. She gets up and goes downstairs. The spot on the wall has changed. The plaster has crumbled even more. There's an undeniable scattering of dust on the floor. She pokes at the damaged plaster, and her finger breaks through. The house is a new build. Isn't yet five years old. How can it be that the wall is disintegrating? She jiggles her finger, loosening more plaster till the hole is wider and she can feel the other side of the wall. That turns to powder, too. She must get someone in to fix it, she thinks, because now it requires more than a touch of paint. It's become a repair job much bigger than she can deal with. On the other side of the wall is the cupboard under the stairs. She goes there and pulls open the door to study the damage, but stares in confusion at the unblemished wall inside. It makes no sense. She goes back to the sitting room and stares at the hole, then puts her finger in again, breaks off more plaster and puts her eye to the gap. It's dark inside. She hears a ticking sound, like claws on lino. Bracken? She slips her mobile from her pocket and switches on the torch function, then shines the light into the hole. There's a solid heavy darkness that the beam of light from her phone doesn't penetrate. Then something moves. A black shape which flashes across her field of vision and sends her scurrying backwards on the floor like a crab. Something is alive inside the wall, in the space that's not the cupboard. She doesn't dare think about it too much, doesn't dare to go near the hole again for the rest of the day. Her mobile makes several jingling sounds, incoming text messages. How are you? You okay? Please get in touch. She sees them all, but doesn't. That night, Joe dreams of the darkness in the walls. It swallowed Bracken, and she can't find him. She wakes up crying. Joe notes again that there's no food in the fridge. The milk is much too sour, so she pours it down the drain. In the cupboard under the stairs, next to a bag of Bracken's unfinished mixer biscuits, which she can't bear to throw away, is a box of stale crackers that's been open for months. She takes one out and chews it. It's too soft and sticks to the roof of her mouth and tastes like cardboard. She grabs a handful of Bracken's mixer biscuits and eats them instead. She can't face the thought of going to the supermarket, or anywhere for that matter. For days she hasn't been showered or dressed, hasn't brushed her hair, but sometimes remembers to brush her teeth. That'll do. That's enough for now. Joe stares at the blank wall, mocks her. She taps on it, 
not sure what she expects to hear. It echoes hollowly like any stud wall should, and she decides it's not filled with scary possibilities. But then, how can she know for sure? Horror has the potential to thrive at any time, in any place. His levels are off the charts. Look here. What does that mean? His kidneys are failing. But what now? What can we do? There's nothing we can do. There must be something. What about dialysis? That isn't an option for dogs, I'm afraid. But there's got to be something. Sorry. No. There's a bottle of vodka on the top shelf. Joe lifts it down, unscrews the top and takes a swig. It's early morning, but this detail is irrelevant. Everything is. The subsequent burn in her throat from the neat alcohol isn't pleasant. Neither is the taste, but she takes the bottle to the sitting room and sits on the floor next to the hole in the wall and stares at it, feeling intermittently dumb and unstable. Sometimes she thinks it contracts and dilates like a quivering nostril, and the darkness inside looks wet. And sometimes she puts her mouth to the hole and whispers Bracken's name. Aside from faint, imagined or not, noises of him mooching about in other rooms of the house, which might well be pipes settling and floorboards resting, he gives her no sign that he might be there within the wall. But what if he is? Joe stays there on the floor till the sun's set and all the house is as dark as the hole and her stomach is clawing hungrily inside her like something that's trapped and she can't feel her legs and her mobile screen displays 18 missed calls and 21 unread messages. She goes to bed, but doesn't remember getting there, and dreams of the black space that keeps Bracken. The next morning, Joe eyes the hole in the wall. The empty vodka bottle is lying beneath it, coated in plaster dust. Her head hurts. How long? A couple of weeks at most, or as little as a few days. I suggest you take him home this evening and say goodbye. But... The phone rings. Its shrillness drills through Joe's skull, pierces her brain. She contemplates not answering, still has no interest in speaking to anyone, but needs the sound to stop. Hello? Hey, about bloody time. It's her best friend, Allie. Where the hell have you been? Nowhere. Just been busy, that's all. Joe eyes the jagged hole. So busy you couldn't even reply to let me know you're okay. Allie's annoyed. Her tone is clipped, but careful. Sorry. So, are you okay? Yeah, of course. There's an exasperated silence. Then Ali says, Do you fancy meeting up? We could go somewhere nice or something to eat. No. Joe doesn't even take a moment to consider the offer. It doesn't interest her. She wants to be left alone. The darkness in the wall swells like a black furry sigh. It beckons to her. Seriously, Joe, you should make an effort to get out of the house. Why? 
change of scenery, and to keep yourself occupied. You need to find a new normal. There was nothing wrong with the normal I had, Joe wants to say. At this thought, tears warm her eyes, blurring her vision. When she says nothing more, Ali suggests, I could come round if you like. No, thanks. Joe puts her finger in the hole in the wall. Has an idea. I'm busy with something today. She hangs up, then goes out to the garage and finds a claw hammer. She brings it into the house and works at the crumbling plaster, chipping away at it and widening the hole till it's big enough for her to crawl through. When she stands up inside the wall, she looks around and sees nothing at all. It's an ethereal space of black oblivion. She can no longer identify where the hole is to get out. Perhaps it's closed up. A swell of panic rises in Joe's chest. She twirls around, frantically feeling with her hands. They come into contact with nothing. No wall. No objects. Nothing. Bracken! Bracken! She stands still, can hear the shushed silence of the empty house. That's all. An involuntary shudder courses through her. She thinks she's made a mistake. Shouldn't have come inside the whole seeking impossible solace. The blackness is indefinite in its vastness, perhaps bending to the shape of the house's walls, perhaps not. Either way, there's no way out. No one else knows there's a hole in the wall. Joe thinks she should have told Allie about it. But it's too late now. She's trapped in this unlit, frightening place. And Bracken's not here. That was R.H. Dixon's The Hole in the Wall, as read by Alex Ford. Alex Ford spends most of her time cooped up in a closet reading to herself. Sometimes she edits and narrates books, too. She likes cats, food, wine, and scary stories best. She likes you, too. Feel free to make contact on Instagram at SeriouslyAlex or to be summarily ignored on Facebook, though she does occasionally open the messenger. Thank you, Alex. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Our second story tonight comes from Roy Bishop. Roy Bishop resides in Littleton, Colorado, with his dog, Laser Bomb. His story, Flyover Country, appeared on Tales to Terrify back in 2018. Sit back, relax, and listen with me, children of the night, to Roy Bishop's Hot Streak, a Tales to Terrify original. They were booing him. They never used to boo him. He remembered the night the streak began. Two sheets to the wind with his ass hanging off a stool at the Bellagio dollar slot machine. Eight years and two months ago. Sixth pull, jackpot. Next pull on another machine, jackpot. Roulette table, six plays, six wins. By the time the casino brought in the pit bosses, he was playing blackjack and winning every hand with zero understanding of the rules. He told them it was just a hot streak. They still threw him out. A growing crowd of onlookers followed him to the Mandarin, the Monte Carlo, the New York, New York, across the street to the MGM Grand. His entourage grew by a few hundred with each ejection. Eventually, he started bribing the bouncers with poker chips so he could leave under his own power. He won until he, and said bouncers, had to carry his winnings in 11 jumbo garbage bags that sagged under the weight. Two of the bags split open and spilled a fortune in the middle of the street, prompting a full-scale riot that killed two people. Easy come, easy go. By the time he shut down the Venetian with a straight flush on the river, whatever the hell that meant, 3,000 people were on hand to crowd-surf him back to his hotel room as he threw hundreds into the air. Oh yes, they'd loved him that night. The law of averages stated that he had to lose eventually. He was prepared for that eventuality. At first. Okay, now, he'd ask himself before each bet. That became okay, enough already, before it became, why am I still winning? Before it became, is this an act of God? It might very well have been. As days turned into weeks, the winning never stopped. The Nevada casinos banned him outright and sent the word to Atlantic City so that when he tried to fly in under a fake name, they rerouted his plane to Islip. Even Shreveport casinos had his picture on hand and stopped him at the door. With those avenues closed, he settled for buying a lottery ticket at a gas station. The clerk, your classic Louisiana swamper, 
asked him how many numbers he wanted to try. He might have snapped the streak clean right then and there by answering five or ten or a thousand instead of one. But he went with one buy. And that buy happened to be the biggest windfall in American history. He bought seven more tickets from the same store. Seven more windfalls. They turned the gas station into a tourist attraction. The swamper became a millionaire and died of a massive cocaine overdose within three months. By the time the gambler became interested in illegal sports betting, his wealth was estimated to stand at over $3 trillion. He greased the right palms and voila! Sports gambling was legalized in an emergency joint session of Congress. It never got boring, but it wasn't all upside. Public opinion began turning on him around the third or fourth lottery jackpot. At first, he convinced himself it was jealousy. But once he got into sports gambling and moved from winning on the spread to winning on the exact end scores, well, that's when the rumors started. Mr. Hotstreak was somehow fixing the games. He was doing no such thing, not intentionally, but every time he placed a bet, somehow the numbers would reach the players. And since he owned the men who owned the teams, he couldn't rule out his influence. He didn't want to own anyone, but having $3 trillion is having $3 trillion especially when it becomes $26 trillion. In the first years of the hot streak, he'd pick ludicrous bets. A low-division team to make the NCAA tournament and win it all, a bottom-drawer baseball franchise to sweep the World Series, an out-of-shape boxer in his 50s to KO the champ with his first punch, reality bent to his will. After the fourth or fifth year, he began scaling back. Not the betting, mind you, that kept going, but he was less cavalier with the streak. It had become his identity. Before the streak, he was just Jesse Pittman, a part-time auto mechanic from Bakersfield who lived with his parents. Now he was Mr. Pittman, Sir Pittman, Lord Pittman, King Pittman, the richest man who ever lived, the man who never lost, the man who once gave everyone on the planet $1,000 for Christmas. And they were actually booing him. In his own casino, no less. He leaned over the railing to look past 10,000 slot machines and 6,000 card games and 300 roulette tables. On the ground floor, he saw that his bouncers were already collaring the malcontents. Twelve stories and 60 men with submachine guns were positioned between himself and the rioters. He was 40 feet away from his personal escape elevator, which was hidden behind a retractable portion of the seemingly solid marble walls. And everyone who visited his 60,000-acre casino, hotel, dog track, horse track, speedway, venue, amusement, arena, brothel, water park, indoor ski slope, which he'd admittedly undernamed as Jesse's Place, had to go through a metal detector and a full-body scanner after passing an online background check. All fine precautions. The outburst still made him nervous. Not so much for his life. He had 16 doctors on call and a 2-inch plate of bulletproof glass spanning the 11th floor gap but for the implication. Only losers got booed, and he hadn't lost since the fifth pull. The ambient casino noise and the pane of thick glass should have muted the rioters, yet their curses ascended twelve mezzanines and reached him. They used obscene synonyms for their chief insult, but Jesse got the gist. They were calling him a coward. The thing was, they were right. He'd won so much that winning didn't matter anymore. Only losing mattered. The dread had grown fat and smothered all other emotions, even the joy of victory. He stepped back from the railing lest someone with sharp eyes notice the sweat on his brow. Night fell over Jesse's place. That was his cue. People would be drinking now, brave and unruly. It would only take one drunk yelling out an unwinnable bet to kill the streak. 
Like most knights, Jesse was determined to retire to one of the 28 private suites he held on the grounds, and each night he chose one at random. Couldn't be too careful. He'd have them send him a woman or three to clear his head. No time for a real relationship. Those held the potential for arguments and pettiness. The, not only am I leaving you, but I also bet you can't clone a dinosaur in the next hour, sort of pettiness. He pushed a numeric sequence into a soft spot of the wall. The marble opened to reveal the stainless steel interior of his escape elevator, where three armed guards were waiting. He checked his phone on the way down. Five wins on five sure thing games. Exact scores. I really should go back to betting on the spreads, he thought. Less braggadocious. More guards were waiting when the elevator doors opened some 80 feet below the strip. They led him through the parking garage as he took out his phone and scrolled through tomorrow's games. Marlins versus Rockies? Mm, felt like a rainout. He'd check the weather before placing his bet, or maybe he'd bet on the rain. Pittman! Hey! Pittman! Slurred, sloppy, loud speech. The roar of a drunk with his blood up. Keep walking. Get to your car. Pittman! I see you, Pittman! Hey, Pittman! I got a bet for you! No, no, no. Jesse clamped his hands over his ears and shut his eyes. He didn't see the lip of the curb until it caught the edge of his wingtip. He paid his guards well enough to catch him, but no amount of money could shut off reflex. His hands left his ears to break his fall. I said I bet you can't gun me down in broad daylight. Everyone froze as the challenge echoed off the concrete hollows of the garage. Pittman bit his lip until it bled. The guard who caught him let him go. Neither he nor any of the others would make eye contact. The bet was live. The guards parted before Jesse to reveal a bloated, drunken man wavering on his feet. He was dressed like an unmade bed. His face bristled with a gray-flecked six-day beard. In one hand, he held a bag with a bottle inside, and in the other, he held up his camera phone to record the challenge. Several of Jesse's men drew their sidearms. Jesse screamed, No! in a lilting falsetto. Humiliating. He cleared his throat as his men, conditioned to obey his every order, lowered their guns. A few actually dropped them. He said, me. His men scrambled to hand him a weapon, fumbling over each other like idiots. Now the son of a bitch was actually laughing. Worse, he was still recording. Hey, Pittman, you got money in your ears or something? I said broad daylight. He did a shambling vodka pirouette through the fluorescent cavern. Does this look like broad daylight to you? One of the bodyguards whispered into Jesse's ear, It can't be live broadcasting. We're too deep underground to get a signal. Say the word and I'll clip him. We'll blowtorch the phone and dissolve the body in acid. Nobody will have to know. I'll know, hissed Jesse. The drunkard fell on his ass, still laughing. Jesse motioned for his guards to stay behind and walked over to help him to his feet. The fat man had greasy hands and smelled like alcohol and burnt meat. Once he was vertical, Jesse looked into his eyes. The drunk's pupils dilated. The reality of his situation had penetrated the booze fog. Let's set a timetable for this bet, said Jesse. He mulled over how long it would take for a man of his means to get away with murder. Then he added five days. One week? The drunk slowly nodded. Okay. When Jesse grinned, the man realized his mistake. No, wait. A week it is. Jesse shook the sweaty hand he still held. Good luck, Mr... What was it? But the man slipped Jesse's grip and bolted across the parking garage, flab jiggling under his wrinkled clothes. 
Jesse turned and wiped his hand on the shirt of one of his bodyguards. His heart was thundering, and there was a smile on his face that wouldn't quit. For the first time in years, the thrill was back. The gears in his brain spun with possibility. I should have made a bet like this years ago. The background check and a cross-reference of 160 security cameras gave them everything. The drunk was Chad Robertson, 37, a fry cook from Travisburg, Arkansas. By the time Robertson had chugged and shot enough Dutch courage to post the video online, Jesse's people had a full database on him. Home address, phone number, family, friends, high school transcripts, medical history, internet search logs, shoe size, the Walmart where he bought his wrinkled khakis. The works. Jesse took a call from the Senate Majority Leader in his study about a half hour after the video went viral. He despised their conversations. The senator always sounded like the bug up his ass had a bug up its ass. So, um, warbled the senator. How, how do you plan on, on handling this situation? I have to shoot him, senator. Well, okay, um, how do you plan to go about, uh, probably with a gun. Oh, okay. Ten seconds of silence as the wheels turned. I have an idea, said the senator. Go on. Well, Mr. Pittman, what if you just, you know, he seemed like kind of a big fella from the dossier. Maybe the stress will give him a heart attack or what have you, and you can shoot him after he's dead. I mean, desecration of a corpse is bad, but it's not murder bad. Jesse sighed. That's cheating. Try again, Senator. Well, um, okay. Time stretched out. Jesse waved his hand in a circle. Go on, go on, go on. Get on with it, Speedy. Why not just shoot him in the leg? Asked the senator. I remember reading somewhere that if you shoot somebody below the waist, it's not considered attempted murder. Weren't you a lawyer? You don't know for sure? Uh, it's been a bit since I practiced law, so I don't. Jesse sighed. <sighs> he specifically said, gun me down, in the video. Just wounding him would be some pretty weak tea. Pittman walked over to his zebra-skin sofa and plopped down. Lead story on the news, various replays of Robertson's video. Nothing else is going on in the world? Really? Even with the sound off, Jesse still winced at the memory of his falsetto scream. No, Senator, I don't think you understand what I'm going for here. I don't want to do time for a lesser charge. I can't enjoy my winnings in a prison cell. I don't want to do any time at all. You mean... I want to do it, be seen doing it, and get away with it. Get away with m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-
even if we made you a diplomat, you still couldn't do it here without, uh, complications. Right. Too complicated. He could probably buy off the governments of most countries, but only a rogue state was a sure thing, and that meant putting himself in danger. Assuming some rebel in a Nike shirt and tuxedo shoes didn't take a machete to Robertson first. Plus, bringing the whole country into play was overdoing it a bit. If only there was a blank space left on the map where he could... Senator, thank you for your time, he said and hung up, before the senator could fully process, Goodbye. Pittman switched his television over to his internet feed, typed in his request, and hit search. Oh man, he said as the first images came up, stark white on cruel cold blue. This is going to be fun. Getting Chad Robertson to board a Trans-Pacific commercial airliner took surprisingly little effort. Robertson's internet history had revealed both a penchant for leftist causes and a perverted thirst for Asian women. So Jesse baited the trap by hiring an aspiring Korean actress to pose as a sexy sympathizer determined to help Robertson escape the clutches of that horrible man who thinks he owns everything, while also giving Chad the vibe that he might get to nail her. In the belly of his own private jet, Jesse imagined the facade in play. A longing glance across the counter of the greasy spoon where Robertson plied his trade. A touch on the back of the hand, sidling into a grip to pull him to her waiting car. We have to leave. Now. Maybe a kiss if the actress was feeling generous. Hopefully nothing more demeaning to her than that. But he'd paid her well, and he paid for results. Pour in lots of touching monologues about her faith in Robertson, maybe a tale or two about the sorrows Pittman's wind streak had brought to her country, and Chad Robertson would fall like a domino. When will we figure out what's happening? wondered Jesse. Twenty hours into the flight? Will one of the passengers or stewardesses, each one a freshly minted billionaire courtesy of Pittman, give away the game? What will Robertson do when he finds out? Rush the cockpit? Try to tear open the emergency door so he can die on his own terms? He won't get too far with an airplane full of people paid to stop him. Jesse opened the polished wooden case that lay in the adjacent seat. Inside... The cruel black steel of a Colt Cobra gleamed against red velvet. Once upon a time, this very handgun had avenged the death of an American president. Now it would serve to right another wrong against another great man. It was going to be a glorious afternoon. Not a single cloud muddied the horizon. It was the definition of broad daylight. One of his bodyguards peeked through the privacy curtain. Captain says it's 15 minutes to landing, Mr. Pittman. Thanks. When the bodyguard was gone, Jesse opened his suitcase and laid out his new outfit. He stripped down and then slid into the first layer of thermal underwear, then the second. Then the exposure suit, thermal socks, two layers, and custom-sealed boots, insulated gloves. He kept his head lightly covered with a simple ski mask. Cold or no cold, he needed to be able to easily show his face for the camera. He finished with a little yellow nugget for each ear. No Pyrrhic victories today. He glanced out the window as the deep, mysterious blue of the Pacific gave way to a blinding flare of uninterrupted white. It was time. He and his equally bundled bodyguards left the jet behind upon landing and crunched across the hastily built landing strip. The bulldozers and steamrollers idled nearby, already dusted in ice. At the other end of the runway, Trans-Pacific Flight 225 idled with twin engines roaring in the silence of the endless Antarctic winter. Jesse and his entourage stood aside as the great airliner passed them by, pausing only for the door of the fuselage to open and for an unkempt drunk named Chad Robertson to be shoved out into the open air. The fat man fell ten feet and landed with an awkward splat crunch 
on the tarmac. He rolled over, gripping his right arm, which was twisted at an unnatural angle. As he moaned in pain, the passage of Flight 225 blasted him with a whirlwind of icy diamond dust. When the plane was finally in the air, Jesse waved off his guards. While Chad Robertson tried to find his legs, no doubt sprained or broken by the fall, Jesse retrieved his cell phone from the pocket of his exposure suit. Five bars. Amazing what kind of service you could get when every telecom in Hong Kong was groveling at your feet. Jesse pulled up his mask. The cold hit him like a mean left hook. One breath in, and he could feel the mucus in his nostrils freeze. When he exhaled, the vapor crystallized in the air. He smiled into the camera phone and started the broadcast. Hello, world. This is Jesse Pittman, live from what was formerly known as Marie Bird Land, Antarctica. This was, in fact, the largest unclaimed landmass on the planet until a few hours ago. Now it's a sovereign nation. He winked at the camera. I think I'll call it Chad's Bane. He did a quick turn, showing off his new kingdom of hateful white spires and lifeless gray valleys. It's a balmy 15 degrees below zero here in Chad's Bane. Fahrenheit, that is. Don't know the Celsius, just wanted to take a minute or two to let you guys know about my latest wager. He pointed the phone towards Chad Robertson, who was hugging himself and trying to form words through chattering teeth. His nose had gone red, his lips had already chapped, frostbite was on the way, and in a hurry. Now, some of you might remember this gentleman over here, said Jesse, zooming in. Robertson had dressed for warmer weather. A short-sleeved Hawaiian shirt, khakis, ironed khakis, tennis shoes, too bad. This is Chad Robertson, who bet me I couldn't gun him down in broad daylight. Well, Chad, here we are. Robertson screamed something Jesse couldn't hear. Better address that. Oh, and I'm sorry if I'm yelling. I put earplugs in just in case Mr. Robertson tried to Welsh on our bet or go double or nothing. So no matter what he says, I can't hear him. And I won't be watching this video later. We're here to settle one bet and one bet only. Let's keep it that way. He muted the audio on his phone and closed in, drawing Jack Ruby's handgun from his other pocket. Robertson cowered before him, broken from the fall in the cold. Jesse's earplugs muffled his pleas to a low buzz, and even the best lip reader in the world couldn't work around the man's chattering teeth and split lips. It was Jesse Pittman alone who would have the last word. I gave myself a week to kill you, spat Jesse, holding both the gun and the still-recording phone out like perverse offerings. It only took me two and a half days. And then he shot Robertson in the stomach. The fat man's mouth opened in a silent O. He cinched up around the point of impact, looking not unlike Lee Harvey Oswald had when the same weapon claimed his life decades before. After a moment, Robertson's shaking knees gave out, and he collapsed into the swirling snow, clutching his belly's blood pulsed and steamed and froze on his darkening fingers. Jesse emptied the rest of the gun at the tropical heap of the fat man's body, hitting him once or twice and flushing out the brightly colored parrots and palm trees in a spreading sea of steaming red. He kept pulling the trigger after the gun ran empty, telling himself those two or three pulls were just the awkwardness of the thermal gloves. Nothing more. He wasn't a maniac or anything. His nose was cold, so he turned the camera back to himself and offered a rosy-cheeked smile. He restored the audio and spoke two words. I win. Jesse killed the broadcast. He left Robertson to bleed out on the tarmac. While he'd been at work, the tent had gone up. It was enormous, large enough to hold a circus or three. Jesse could hear the buzz of 50 gas generators feeding the heaters inside, and a northern wind blew in the chop of two dozen helicopters. That would be his guests and the press. 
As he approached the circus tent, he could see his bodyguards were already inside, busy setting up a wet bar and a pyramid of champagne glasses. Jesse beamed under his ski mask as one of his men met him at the flap with a tuxedo under plastic. A humble celebration of a personal victory, Jesse thought. Always money well spent. Jesse and his guests partied well into the night, ringed by a half-moon of helicopters and spotlights. It was warm enough inside the tent, almost hot, despite the howling polar winds outside that cast knife blades of bitter cold through the flap whenever another guest passed through. Always accompanied by the clatter of a dozen camera shutters from the parka-clad photographers that huddled by the entryway. Jesse wallowed in the revelry before an ocean of adorers. He allowed himself a glass of champagne to toast a trio of Hong Kong mining executives. He did the Cossack dance with a white-toothed bearded English billionaire for a quartet of cackling Russian oligarchs. He even dared to sip shots of rum from the shallow navel of a supermodel. The sounds of music and laughter grew louder and louder. They passed through the tent's thick thermal layers and rang out across the lifeless plains of the dead continent. Sometime in the early morning, the crowd began to thin out. My cue to leave, thought Jesse. He had a mild buzz going, the strongest one in six or seven years. Maybe he'd indulge it further on the plane. Had to do something with all that time in the sky. And what the hell, he'd earned it. Jesse strode to the entryway through the blinding flash of the remaining photographers and offered the last of them a thumbs up. Stay warm, he chimed. Jesse paused before the slit in the tent to brace himself for the sub-zero cold. He was still in his tuxedo, and the temperature had plummeted since nightfall. Short run to the jet, 40 feet at most, and then I'll be warm again, he thought. Jesse opened the flap. A black, snow-mantled horror fell upon him. It did not shiver. It quaked. Jesse issued the same humiliating falsetto shriek he'd let out in the parking garage. He pinwheeled backward, and the thing collapsed at his feet, giving Jesse a brief view of the lunar desert beyond the tent and the trail of thin, dark vitality that threaded the moonlit tarmac. Jesse looked down in disbelief at Chad Robertson, now purple-black with frostbite from head to toe, fists and belly caked in frozen blood. The man's nose and ears and lips were gone, along with most of his fingers. One eye had frozen shut, but the other beamed, bright and bloodshot and terribly alive. Robertson grinned at Jesse. And when he did, his bloodless cheeks split wide open at both sides, revealing to the running cameras a rictus joker's grin of thirty-two yellow teeth. From that mutilated ruin rose a voice that was ragged and weak, but utterly clear within the shocked silence of the throng. I save my life! That was Roy Bishop's Hot Streak, as read by a new voice here on Tales to Terrify, Dennis Robinson. Dennis Robinson is a fellow content creator from the haunted small town of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. When he's not consulting by day, he is one of the creators behind the comedy podcast Botched, a D&D podcast. Found on all your podcatchers, 
it's not your average D&D podcast, as they focus more on banter, character interaction, and improv comedy instead of the rules. They even had an H.P. Lovecraft-themed campaign for Season 4, set in 1932 New York City. This season, they ventured into space with more than 50 custom-created alien races. You can watch their show live, or catch up, over at twitch.tv slash botchedpodcast. As a quick aside, I've been powering through Botched myself for the last few months, and as a latecomer to D&D, I really only started tabletop gaming in the last few years. I absolutely love it. With all the restrictions and lockdowns, it's honestly been a great way to feel like I'm just hanging out with friends. Fun, hilarious, super weird friends. So, if you're into it, take a listen, check out their socials, and if you can, support them on Patreon. Keep up the great work, Dennis, and thanks for reading for us. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters through Patreon and PayPal. If you're not already a supporter, head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify for a look at all the awesome perks, from ad-free episodes and bonus content to shout-outs and swag. Every dollar helps, and we appreciate it so much. If you're looking for another way to help, why not drop a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts? Ratings and reviews are an easy way to show your appreciation and help us spread the darkness. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we ward off the apocalypse with more Tales to Terrify. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.